have your copy of God's Word and would like to open to the book of Genesis. I know that's very far from Ephesians. Open to Genesis. Um, we're going to start there, and we will be all over Scripture today. And if you'll notice in your, in your bulletins, there is no outline. There's no fill in the blanks. Uh, so I would like to recommend that as you hear different passages, and I'll try to um, be very clear as I talk about the various passages we're looking at today, um, I'll try to give you the exact reference so you can look back at those later. But we don't have slides, so it's just us. We get to just focus together. Um, but I want us to think for a moment about Abraham's faith. In Genesis chapter 15, God and Abraham have this little encounter. And in verses 1 through 5, Genesis reads, it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and, the, and, the, and number the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And shortly after that, God instituted, God told Abraham, Abraham, he said, Abraham, I want you to get these certain animals and I want you to, we're going to make a covenant. We're going to enter into a covenant together. And so Abraham did what the Lord said and he divided the animals on both sides and God put Abraham to sleep. He put him in a kind of a deep trance, if you will. And God walked through the sides of this, these sacrifices, indicating that God was covenanting himself to Abraham. But I want you to think about a couple things. Abram at this time was old. We don't know exactly how old he was, but he was old. He was promised land. Later on, he was given a timeline. God told Abram, he said, in four generations, your family's going to come back here and possess this land. But there's one verse in all of this that seems to pull this together. So you have God calling Abraham, saying, I'm going to bless you, and then God covenanting with Abraham. But right in the middle of that, in verse 6, Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, it says this, And he, meaning Abram, believed the Lord, and he, meaning God, counted it to him, meaning Abraham, as righteousness. Let me read that one more time. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him, as righteousness. You see, God had promised a son, and even in his old age, Abraham believed that somehow God would provide a son. He didn't believe in his own ability. He believed in the God who had promised this. He didn't believe in his own planning or vision casting. He didn't know the path that God was going to have for him, just that his descendants, as numerous as the stars, would be back on this little piece of property about the size of New Jersey. He didn't believe in his own strategy. He believed in God. And as a result, it was credited, or to use a nice theological word, it was imputed to him as righteousness. 
See, this encounter between God and Abraham is one of the first instances we see in Scripture regarding the doctrine that we're considering today, and that is the doctrine of sola fide. This is the next in the five solas that we are considering. And if you remember from our previous conversations back in the 1500s or in the years leading up to the 1500s, or in the 1500s rather, the the reformers sought to bring about changes and reformations in the church. And as a result, they produced five solas or five alones that marked these reformations. And generally, these five solas are distinctive markers in Protestant churches today. Two, two weeks ago, we began by considering sola scriptura, that scripture alone is our final authority. Last week, we looked at solus Christus, that Christ alone is our means of sal- salvation. It's not sacraments or it's not a mediation by the church, but it is in Christ alone. And so today, we're considering sola fide. Justification is found by faith alone. Justification and, and righteousness, if you were to read through Scripture and run across those words, a lot of times they're, they overlap and they run into each other. They don't mean the same thing, but they're very closely tied together. For example, when a person is justified, they are declared righteous, or they are at least righteous according to some legal standard. Just as Abraham was, was credited with righteousness, sola fide deals with this doctrine and its application toward Christians. Joel Beakey, in his book, um, defines it this way. He says, Justification is God's gracious, forensic declaration that guilty sinners are forgiven and thus freed from condemnation and reckoned or counted as obedient to the law and thus worthy of eternal life. So you have these two parts. They're declared forgiven and reckoned or counted as obedience. And both of those, he continues, are on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. So let's consider a couple things in this declaration. If you want to write this down, this is the first big thing, that justification is received by faith alone in Christ alone. Alone. Justification is received by faith alone in Christ alone. You see, when Abraham believed God, he had faith. He didn't know who Christ would be. He didn't know that there would be a Messiah many, many years later. He didn't even have a religious system that he could follow. He was just called out of his paganism into a relationship with the one true God. But he was growing in his knowledge of God, and he demonstrated faith in God, which really sort of begs the question, what is faith? What is faith? As, as Carolyn read earlier, Hebrews 11, 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's confidence, not based on visual evidence, but is based on something more. Things might look one way, but we know that the truth is beyond that because of the one who ordains all truth. According to the Westminster Confession of Faith, It writes, the grace of faith, whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls, is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts, and is ordinarily ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the Word. R.C. Sproul simplifies it, as he does, as any good teacher should. He simply says, faith is believing God, as we saw in Abraham. He continues, faith, it's believing God. The Christian life is about believing God. It's about about living by faith, 
living by every word that proceeds from his mouth. It's about following him into places where we've never been, into situations that we've never experienced, into countries that we've never seen because we know who he is. And we saw that in Abraham's life. If we were to study Abraham, we know that he was called out of his, his father's land. He was called out of his father's household and sent to go west into a place that God simply said, I will show you where you're going to go. So the essence of faith is trusting or believing in who Jesus is and what he has done. And yet there's an ongoing element of faith. Gerhard Weiss said that faith is the channel through which all the benefits of Christ grow. It's the, it's the means, it's the means by which we receive everything we have in Jesus Christ. Faith isn't just something we exhibit, but it's this highway of blessing from God to us. Faith is not something earned. It's not something physically handed off to us. The blessings we receive in Christ, we don't receive physically. Everything we receive from him is by faith. And as we're thinking about it today, everything includes justification, being declared right before God. So this justification or this declaration of righteousness is by faith alone in Christ alone. Brian read a bit earlier of what this means. When we're dead in our sins and we are hopeless, God did something about it. Think about this. In Abraham's situation, God was the one who acted first. He said, Abraham, I'm calling you out of this into a relationship with me. And in much the same way, God does the same thing for us. Let's think back to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. Again, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Hebrews 2, 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with him. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And here's the clincher. We're going to touch on some of this next week too. For by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. And it is a gift of God. This is not your own doing, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And here's a, two key concepts I think we need to get to. And one is we're saved by grace. We're going to get to sola gratia next week. We're saved by grace through faith. And the reason is that, one, we are not able to do so. Think about this. Being dead in our trespasses and sins, what do dead people do? We do a whole lot of nothing. Unless there's some sort of zombie resurrection, we do a lot of nothing. So when we're dead in our sin, we have no ability to follow God. We have no ability to raise up and do something about this God of the universe. So because we're unable to do so, we receive this salvation by grace through faith. But there's a second reason why salvation, justification, righteousness is achieved by faith. It's so that none of us can boast. I mean, you know how we are. Facebook is all about our best moments, right? It's all about those best, hey, look at me. Look who I got to meet. Look who I got to encounter. Hey, aren't I nice and skinny? Aren't I not nice and skinny? All these things, we want to show our best foot. We want to brag. And yet our salvation is based entirely on something that we have no ability to brag about. 
God picked me. Yay, God. Because ultimately we recognize as dead people walking, we have no value, no worth to God. We have nothing that we can offer to him that says, don't you want to pick me? It's not like when you're playing kickball on the playground and you're trying to show off your best abilities. God's God's typically the one who's going to pick the worst. And we see that throughout Scripture. And we often puzzle by it. God, why'd you pick that guy? Ultimately, it gets us back to, God, why did you pick me? But, oh, man, I'm so grateful you did. So we are saved from the consequences of the punishment, the guilt of our sin through faith in Jesus Christ. But not only do we receive salvation, we receive justification. And again, here's that word. Justification is is difficult to think about, it, but it's a declaration of righteousness. But the object of that faith, the object that we are believing in is Jesus Christ. You see, here's a man who lived a perfect life. He knew no sin. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus perfectly fulfilled all that the law required. He perfectly obeyed all that the Father called him to do, especially in his work on the cross. Thomas Schreiner, in his book on on the doctrine of justification, on faith alone, he says he, meaning Jesus, obeyed his Father, that he did everything the Father called him to do, for the Father mandated him to do many things that were not written in the law. Jesus, as the Son of the Father, did what the Father commanded on all occasions and in every circumstance. So his obedience transcends the keeping of Torah or the Jewish law. Jesus' obedience is displayed supremely on the cross, his taking the punishment upon himself that human beings deserve. In any case, when we put our faith in Jesus, we are given the whole Christ so that both his sin-bearing death and his obedience, and I want you to hear this, his sin-bearing death and his obedience are counted to us. They're counted to us. Romans chapter 5, verses 16 to 19 helps us understand this a bit. It says, And the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. And again, Paul is referring to Adam because Adam sinned and he is the first human. All humans are then stained by that sin. Death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as the one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Philippians 2 further illustrates this. Paul writes, beginning in verse 5, Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but 
emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. And here's the clincher. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we have this challenge. We have this one man, Adam, who brought sin into the world, and now all of us are stained with this. Now we have the one man, Jesus Christ, the God man, as we saw last week, this this. A guy who was fully God and fully human, who fully obeyed all of the law, all of what God called him to, offered his life as a sacrifice, as a substitute for your sin and mine. And his one act of obedience, all the acts, but his primary act of obedience on the cross, now brings us a way of having justification through him. This week, Jim came by the office and he gave me another verse that I, I want to share with you today, Titus chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. He summarizes, uh, Paul summarizes the work of Christ in this way. Titus 3, 5 through 7. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So with the, foundation of, uh, with the foundation of what justification is and how we receive it, let's think about a couple of other elements. So we, we first of all understand that justification, in order for us to be declared righteous, in order, order for us to be declared just, it, something we express or we receive through faith in Jesus Christ alone, but let's understand a couple, th- couple more things that sola fide represents, and that justification by faith alone is forensic. We heard that word a little earlier. It's forensic. It's not transformative. And I know you might be thinking, what? What do you mean by forensic? And believe me, I, I am asking myself that same question. As I was studying this, th- this week, some, some of these theological guys, they'll spout off these words, and you think, what? I don't understand what it means. But I want you to understand it this way. When, when we have, when you're watching one of those detective TV shows and they bring in a forensic um, detective to a crime scene, these forensics, these forensic people are coming together to gather evidence so that they take it to a lab in order to determine who done what, right? They're trying to figure out who's guilty and who's not, whose DNA is all over that crime scene in order that a judge might look at not only the witness testimony, but now the forensic evidence to determine this person is just or this person is unjust based on that. So what does that mean for us in Jesus Christ? Thomas Schreiner explained it this way. He says, justification is forensic rather than transformative, denoting a change in status rather than a change in nature. Something doesn't change immediately in us. We're not exhibiting it, but justification becomes this marker that something is immediately different. It's as though the crime scene of our lives is analyzed, and for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, his DNA is now all over us. 
His DNA is there. And so God looks at it and he says, oh, I see my son, Jesus Christ, all over your life. His righteousness is now your righteousness. Your sin has been covered. You are declared righteous and just according to the law. Paul writes in Galatians, he says, yet we know that a person, this is Galatians 2.16, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And then he continues in chapter 2, verse 20 of Galatians. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So this kind of begs the question. If we might, might be able to grasp the idea that salvation or justification by faith alone is forensic, why would theologians counter that with transformative? What's the difference? And, and if you think about it, back in the, time of the, in, in the time leading up to the Reformation, many church leaders taught that justification was in Christ and in our actions. You could only be justified if you were truly proving that Christ had done something in your life that the righteousness of Christ would work to transform us so then our justification was in some ways based on our performance. The reformers challenged that what the church leaders were mixing up was another big word, justification and sanctification. Justification is that declaration of righteousness. Sanctification is that ongoing growth in holiness. They're They're related but we are declared righteous by Jesus Christ through what he has done. We are sanctified by the Holy Spirit, by the washing with water of the word, by our ongoing relationship with him. This gentleman named John Brown of Womfrey compares justification and sanctification in this way. He says, justification is a change in relation to God and his law. Sanctification is that change in nature justification is the judicial act of God acquitting believers. He's saying, you're innocent. You were guilty, but because of the blood of my son, you are innocent. Sanctification is this continual building up. Justification is perfect at the first moment. Sanctification is not perfect until death. Justification is equal in everybody. All of us are, who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ are equally justified, declared innocent. All of us. Sanctification is not the same in all believers. You're going to grow different than I will. You're going to grow faster than I will. And, and so we're all going to grow at different, but we're all equally justified. Does that make sense? Justification cannot be lost. You've been declared righteous through Jesus Christ. But sanctification, yeah, we can, you've heard the phrase, oh, they lost their sanctification. They, it was a big Saturday night. They didn't do so well, right? And we might joke and say, well, I, but we understand that there are things in our lives. We, we take three or four steps forward in holiness, and then we screw up and take a couple steps back in holiness, all the while being fully justified. So justification cannot be lost, but sanctification in degrees may be lost. Justification is instantaneous. 
Sanctification is progressive. It's that growth that we have through our entire life. Justification removes guilt and liability to a penalty. Sanctification kills the being and the power of sin. It's that progress in our life of God rooting out sin in our lives. Justification is, is that we are accepted and righteousness is imputed to us. Sanctification is grace infused and Holy Spirit given. It's that outworking of that work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Justification gives the right to life. Sanctification gives fitness to share an an inheritance. It shows up that we are worthy to receive this. Now, even though we get to receive it right from the beginning, justification is received by faith alone. Sanctification requires the exercise of all the graces, all that work, the word of God, the Holy Spirit, the fellowship of believers, our time together. All of that works together for our sanctification. So if sanctification was transformative, think about this. So we already said sanctification, or rather justification, we said was, was forensic. It's a, here's the evidence, you're there. If it was transformative, then a guy like the Apostle Paul might not say something like this in Romans 7, 15. He says, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. That doesn't sound like someone who's fully justified. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, and that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. You guys, can you relate to Paul? Aren't you glad that our justification is not based on our ability to obey? Even Paul, the apostle, I mean, he was a good man after he got done killing Christians. He was a good man, and yet even here he says, the thing I want to do, I don't want to do. The thing I do, I hate. He continues, so I find, I find it to be the law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God and in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. O oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he answers his own question. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus has justified us in spite of our performance. And I'm so glad he did. So yes, we can be transformed, and that's the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, but we are forensically declared just and right through Jesus Christ by faith. But there's one other thing I want us to think about, that justification by faith alone is both now and later. Do you remember that candy when you were growing up, the now and laters? Um, it, it, it's, a, it's a candy that you would, you would suck on, ideally, unless you started chewing on it, it would pull out all your fillings, which I guess if you're eating candy, you're probably getting fillings anyways. But if you suck on it, it's there for a really long time. But I went on their website and I found out that now and laters, the reason they called it that in some ways, it's because they're so small. So you can eat one now and enjoy another one later. It's, I mean, it's a marketing campaign. You want to have more and more and more, right? But here's the thing. Here's what I want us to realize. 
that justification by faith alone is a now and a later event in our lives. It's something we experience now from the moment you say, yes, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I trust in what you did on the cross. I believe that you died for me, and I know I can't have a relationship with Jesus Christ outside of what you've done. He says that in that moment, you are now fully justified, declared righteous. But the later element of it is the fact that in eternity, we have this eternity that we're looking forward to one day. Through Jesus Christ, because of what he did on, what he did on the cross and in his life leading up to that event, he purchased our salvation. And when we trust in him, we receive his righteousness in exchange. Isaiah 53 prophesied about this. In verses 5 and 6 it says, But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And here's, here's where that exchange happens. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then down in Isaiah 53, 11, it says, Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. And so Paul applies it to us as believers in Romans 5, verse 19, when he says, For as by the one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience many will be made righteous now. This making or declaring righteous is what theologians call imputation or imputed righteousness. It's placed on us. It's like a courtroom declaration we aren't only justified as right according to the law, but because of Jesus Christ, we receive his very righteousness. Now, I realize in our court of law, it doesn't make sense. This doesn't, we don't fully grasp this. If, you, if you're guilty of some law, if I get a ticket and I go to the judge and I say, judge, I messed up. He's going to declare me righteous after I pay my fine. He might give me points to make me do some sort of penalty. But in the courtroom of God, what essentially happens is we'd stand there guilty. And he says, you are now declared righteous by faith in Jesus. You have my righteousness. A human earthly judge wouldn't give us his righteousness per se, but God gives us his righteousness. Joel Beakey describes it this way. He says, therefore... To be made righteous does not refer to the sanctification of many people's character, but to their justification in the courtroom of God. Christ's obedience is their righteousness. And as we consider, this is a declaration that is immediately applied. If you are a believer by faith, you are justified, declared righteous with Christ's righteousness now. But we also have to recognize that we are walking in Christ's righteousness, but we certainly aren't fully living up to his righteousness, and we never will. So this is where the later comes into play. What we believe by faith now will be fully realized later. Tom, Thomas Schreiner says, believers in Jesus Christ are now justified through faith in Jesus Christ. They are justified by faith alone by virtue of Christ's death for their sins and his resurrection for their justification. Still, 
They look forward to the day when the declaration will be announced publicly to the entire world. In this sense, as many scholars attest, justification is an already but not yet reality. Presently, believers may doubt their justification, for it is theirs by faith, and God hasn't publicly revealed their status to the entire world. Indeed, the truth that Jesus is ruling and reigning has been hidden from the world, and thus his role as resurrected Lord is doubted and rejected. But the day is coming when God will reveal to all that Jesus, has, Jesus is the risen Lord in Christ, and he will announce to all that those who have put their, faith, put their trust in him are acquitted of all their sins. We believe it by faith now, and we realize it. We will realize it by faith later when God publicly says, these are my people saved through the blood of Jesus Christ. Welcome. Come into the presence, into my presence. So in closing, we've considered a little bit of sola fide today, and I realize we've really just scratched the surface. There are books filling my library that really talk about that. But we've seen that justification is received by faith alone, in Christ alone. It's not our righteousness. It's not our goodness. It's through faith in him alone. Justification is forensic, and it's not transforming. It's not based on our performance. We can't lose it because we've been declared righteous in Jesus Christ. It's his reputation on the line, not ours. But finally, justification is now and later. Because of Jesus' obedience and his substitutionary sacrifice, we are declared righteous, imputed with his righteousness. And we look forward to the day when sustained by Christ until that day, God reveals to the whole world who are publicly his. And so the question I have is, are you his? And do you believe by faith that you are his? Has he called you out? Let's go back to Abraham for a quick moment. We looked at him. We, we considered the fact that God promised something, and Abraham believed, and it was credited to him as righteous. He believed, okay, good, you got it, you're there. God credited to him as righteousness, declared him righteous by faith, and yet Abraham was still a work in progress. We read from Genesis chapter 15, the very next chapter, do you know what happens? Abraham commits adultery. He, he begins to doubt that God, actually his wife doubted that God would actually give him a son. So his wife says, here's my handservant, Hagar. The very next chapter, failure. And then several chapters later, we see that on two different occasions, Abraham and Sarah are, are, are walking through different cities, and, and Sarah was quite a looker, and he was a little afraid that if people knew she was his wife, that they would take her and kill him. So he said, no, she's my sister. Twice he lied about his wife. Women, I hope your husbands never do that. That doesn't sound like a man who's performing well, Right? And yet, in spite of Abraham's faithfulness, we could say, we could say that we are all part of God's faithfulness to that covenant. Remember, he was declared righteous. He was counted righteous. He believed God. He's still a work in progress, as we all are. 
So beloved brother and sister in Christ, let me encourage you to rest assured in your salvation. You might have one of those crazy Saturday nights or Friday nights, or you might make some horrible mistake. Rest in your salvation. Rest in the salvation that Jesus Christ gives you. Continue to pursue holiness, but don't get discouraged by failures. Ask a brother and sister in Christ to come alongside and say, hey, let me help you with this, or will you help me? I am struggling in this area. We are, we, that's what the body of Christ is there for. We get to help one another mutually grow in holiness. But I want to encourage you to, friend, if you're far from God, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, then hear this encouragement from the book of Romans, chapter 5, verse 1. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you would, by faith, receive this peace from God. It is only attained through Jesus Christ. We can't earn it. You can't be good enough. You can't give enough to charity. You can't do enough good deeds to earn your place. Because remember, we are all dead people walking. Dead people have nothing to offer. There's no life in us. That life is given by Jesus Christ. He paid, the, he paid for the just consequences of your sin with his life. And so let me encourage you to turn and trust in him. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, Because if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved and justified. This part of Romans doesn't say that, but as we've seen, you will be justified as well. For with, one, with the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Today is the day of salvation. Will you trust in him. Let's pray together.